and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis is joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey. I just realized that I talk about where both of you are, but I never say where I am, which is Philadelphia. Um, <laughs> not that it's even remotely relevant. <laughs> um, this month, we're talking to Felissa Kramer, the new editor-in-chief of JTA, for our first segment. And for our second segment, we're talking about a new short film called Broken Bird. Uh, I'll, we'll say more about Broken Bird when we get to the second segment. But for now, um, Felissa Kramer, uh, welcome to Talking in Show. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Congratulations on your new job. Thank you. It's been it's been maybe a billion years or three months. It's hard to tell. Right. <laughs> time. Yeah. 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 What is time? I ask myself every single day at about nine thirty. <laughs> Zahava has a lot of really good questions, and I actually just want to say full full disclosure that I used to work for a company that is now part of the JTA group, and so it doesn't like I did, had not met Felissa before this conversation, but. Uh, full disclosure. Um, but yeah, so Hava, why don't you take it away? Yeah, I was really interested um, to talk to you, Felissa, because I think that the world of Jewish media is changing really fast, or that's how it feels on the reader side. Um, though I suppose technically here we are a part of Jewish media in a, after a fashion. Um, but in terms of Jewish publications, it does feel like things have shifted a lot from the Jewish publications that I grew up with. So when I was growing up in the 90s, early 2000s, the Jewish newspapers that my family received at home were sort of part Israel news or American news that related to Israel and anti-Semitism, part feature stories on Jewish community happenings, and part society pages. Like I remember uh, reporting on who was being honored at certain prominent fundraisers. Um, today, people can get their Israel news directly from Israeli outlets online, and the society pages function, I think, has been largely subsumed by social media. And so given that, I'm wondering what you'd say the right areas of focus are for American Jewish publications today. Wow, well, it sounds like you have thought, <laughs> you have a longer history of thinking about Jewish media than I do. Um, just a little bit about me before I answer that really good question. So until three months ago, I was sometimes a consumer of Jewish media, but really didn't have anything to do with it other than being Jewish and being in the media. So I was a co-founder of a news organization called Chalkbeat that covers public education and equity and education. I did that for pretty much my entire career. Um, and, you know, like that was tons of fun. And I gained lots of skills about leading, you know, in leading a, the digital newsrooms and um, kind of my skills grew as the media landscape really changed. Um, so I think what you're saying about Jewish media has been, is true for local news generally, right? That, um, you know, this, some of this hyper-local pieces of you just want to see yourself or your friends or your family reflected in the paper. Like there's other more expedient, more efficient ways to do that. Um, you know, that sets aside the question of like, I like archives. You know, we, we won't have those archives on social media, but it makes sense that like the society pages are happening there. Um, you know, I think there's, and then, and then at the same time, you know, in, entwined with that is the kind of collapse of the economy around local news. So advertising dollars 
are very hard to come by to support local journalism. And that's a huge problem for local communities. It's a huge problem for democracy. There are people, including my co-founder at Chalkbeat, who are working on this problem. And I'm really glad that really smart people are working on this problem. Um, it does leave the question of, I think, Everybody who thinks about this has this visceral reaction. Yes, we need local news. It's really important. And then the next question is the one you pose. Well, what, what, what should it be? If it's not the old way of doing things, what is it now? And that's something that we're really engaged with um, at JTA, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. We're a global news organization, um, but we are looking at the local landscape and, and thinking a lot about how we can serve local readers um, you know, in the past, I think there were hundreds of clients. So JTA is kind of like a news organization that people consume digitally. People come to our website, people find us through social media, but also a, a wire service for local Jewish newspapers. Um, at one point, there were hundreds of clients. There are not hundreds of clients now. Um, of the dozens of clients that we have now, if you go to their websites right now, I think you'll see some pretty scary, desperate pleas for community support. Um, you know, the the economy around local news was already weak. It evaporated in the last two months. Um, so we're thinking about how do we serve local readers? And we don't have those answers yet, but it's a kind of a task that we're really committed to. Um, and we know that local readers like story, like, they like to understand how their, what's happening locally fits into a broader context. So I think we at JTA are pretty well positioned to um, explain that broader context and we have to figure out how do we create the local news too. That was a long-winded answer to a very good question. I don't know if I answered it. I think you did. I, I think that it's not really an answerable question. Um, and, you know, like you said, lots of people are thinking about this and, and doing different things. I'm curious if you have thoughts on the other side of it, like someone who um, lives in, say, Chicago and um, wants to read Jewish news about Chicago. You know, I actually am not even sure if like the Chicago Jewish news is still around, but how what is the best way to support your local Jewish paper, which, you know, presumably has um, a bunch of articles from JTA, but also, you know, hopefully some of their own work aside from subscribing, which obviously is, is the kind of most important thing. What, what else is there to do? I think that I mean, I think that's the answer, right? Subscribe, tell your friends and family to subscribe. A lot of these I, I actually don't know this. Some of the local organizations may be charitable. They're all asking for support. Um, and. So that's, you know, that's always an option. Um, you know, the mantra right now outside the inside and outside the Jewish world is like support, you know, support the organizations that are doing the work that you want to see continue. And I think that's that's the only choice you have. Right. Like subscribe. I think you raise sort of in there a question of are you getting a product that um, you can't get somewhere else? And I think uh you know, I want the answer to that to be yes. I don't know that that's always the case. I think there are ways that we can support local news creation. Um, and over time, I hope we can get more creative about marrying local news creation and synthesis reporting and explainer reporting and all of that so that, um, you know, a local reader can get 
what they want locally, but also understand the big picture that they fit into. I think that's that's super important. And people want that. You know, I think they may not have known, craved that however many years ago, but there's no way to feel right now, not just in this moment, but in this broader moment in, in history that like, you know, every, everyone is connected. Our communities aren't, don't operate in their own silos, especially in the Jewish community where, you know, Jewish geography really is like, it's not a, just a joke. It's also a story about the way that our communities are connected. Um, and, and news has to reflect that, I think, too. I have a question about this particular moment in time. It's struck me as everything is locked down or most things are locked down that there's just not that much news. It's all coronavirus and a few pieces about the impacts of coronavirus. Um, and I'm wondering what the, what it looks like inside JTA to think, all right, how do we cover the the vir- the pandemic and its impacts, but also what are the other stories and how can we scratch those up? Right. Just last week, I opened up like documents from the beginning of March where I had been on the job at that point, like six weeks. And, you know, I had these big ideas and we had made some, done some brainstorming and, and I wanted to see like how much of that even feels like it's part of our reality. And the answer is really nothing. I think we're start. I think, I think, um, and I think, you know, like everybody in this moment is, you know, our feelings are all over the place. And, and I think even in our team, you know, one day it's like, this is so boring. We've covered all the angles, like there's nothing new to say. And the next day is like, there's, there's more news than we can possibly cover. And the world is moving so quickly, even though everybody is stuck at home. And I think that that's really true. And, you know, the, the fun thing about being news people is that we can always come up with new angles and I I think there's we brought on a new reporter during this time and like we still have way more stories than um than we can possibly pull off I think you're maybe tapping a little bit into like our readers or humans fatigued by the news and I think that that's a real concern um we're trying always to have a nice balance between meaty kind of um media institution coverage, which is really important. Like, how is the Jewish world going to survive this crisis? Um, and, uh, you know, practical news, like are synagogues opening in places where opening is permitted and how are people thinking through that? Um, and also making sure that we've got fun stuff too. So we have a series about, like, you're stuck at home and have run out of things to watch. Here are some Jewish movies or TV shows you could revisit from your past or... Um, here, you know, we've finding the helpers and, and highlighting what they're doing, um, you know, I think for our own sanity and then also to support our readers, like we want that mix. Um, I think we're just now starting to think about some of the stories that we put on the back burner. Can we get them out mm-hmm. with a little bit of a coronavirus angle? Um, I think that it is there are no stories outside of there's no, there, there are no stories where like coronavirus isn't a thing. That right. is our world now. Um, but within that world, I think people are living, you know, living their lives. And there are ways to kind of pull out some of some stories that are not coronavirus central. That's great to hear. I mean, I hope so. You can tell me we're going to try and get some out in the next week. And you can tell me if they work. <laughs> they feel a little... It's a little out of touch, but 
the reporting. I mean, we had a reporter who got, who did a reporting trip to LA and came back on uh, March 5th. And, you know, by Monday, like filing those stories seemed a little bit uh-huh. like didn't, didn't make sense anymore. Um, oh. So, yeah. You know, JTA is interestingly positioned, as you said, as a Jewish wire service because serving local outlets, but also being um, focused on a specific interest area. Um, because in in my head, I've, I've been making a distinction between um, geography-based coverage and interest-based coverage. And it seemed to me as a consumer of news that just as local outlets have been flagging for various reasons, that there may be um, more of an uptick in interest-based outlets. So, I mean, as you said, as a co-founder of Chalkbeat, that's something, because I work in the education policy space, I've seen specific publications rise up to cover public education. Um, even more recently than Chalkbeat, there's the 74, which is another education-based outlet. Um, around the same time, Color Lines, which is focused on racial issues. There's a very new outlet called 19th, which is about um, focused on women through news, politics, and culture. And I find myself seeing these geographically untethered issue-focused publications rise up, just as the very sort of generalized local outlets um, seem to be on the decline. And you sort of sit, I think, at an interesting nexus there at JTA. I don't have a question more specific than do you have thoughts about that? <laughs> so first of all, I think that I want to be optimistic about local news. And I do think that there are um, exciting and innovative local first ventures that are doing great work and able and f- and, and finding a way to be sustainable. Um, they're not, you know, based on philanthropy and reader support rather than advertising advertising dollars. So I think that is a thing that can work in some places and there are really, really amazing people working on it. Okay, that's part one. Part two, yes, single subject news is, that's been like the wave in the last, I don't know, five to seven years, I'm making up a number. I think, I think the, um, the local piece is becoming more prominent right now with the absolute collapse of the local local ecosystem. Um, single subject has been the thing. And even as some of those news organizations that you just mentioned are pretty niche, their potential readership is way bigger than JTAs. Like there are not that many Jewish people in the world, even if all of them read JTA, which like that's definitely our goal. Um, that would still be a fraction of the potential audience for the 19th or Chalkbeat. Um, so that's something that we're always reckoning with, for sure. Uh, you didn't ask a question, so I'm not really giving you an answer. I do think about that. Um, and I do think that even in national or international news organization, stories resonate when they're rooted in places. That really is true often. Um, I don't think that people only care about the place where they live. Um, They may care more about it, but I think that good reporting and good writing um, and smart distribution can engage readers about stories that are from places very different 
from where they are. So like an example of that is that most of our readership is in North America and we really think of ourselves as telling the story of the Jewish world for the North American reader. We have an amazing reporter, Kanan Lifshitz, who's in, um, he's based in Amsterdam and he covers Europe and his stories are some of the most read that we have. Um, so, you know, we, we really can see in our readership data that people are interested in stories from around the world, um, especially when those stories make a good case for kind of why they're clear, they're, if they're clear for readers about why they're interesting and relevant and not just a novelty. Um, so that's something that we're thinking about. How do we do more of that and, and, you know, really be super clear with readers about why they should read those stories? Um, and I'm just kind of rambling because you didn't ask a question. It's really on you, yeah, Hava, but, <laughs> but I don't know if that gave you anything to think about. Um, because you were always, we are always grappling with, we want to serve the readers that we're setting out to serve. There are, um, we're kind of lucky because we know a lot about the potential readership, right? Like the Jewish world is, is like pretty well understood. There's a lot more we could learn about media consumption habits. Um, we can certainly reach a lot more readers, but like we, our potential audience is, is pretty clear to us. Um, which which gives us some starting point for figuring out that intersection of local and global and interest area and everything else. I'm curious about um, how you think that you fit in around other like religion based um, news services. Like there are Christian equivalents, or I don't actually think they're equivalent to JTA, but there are Christian news services. Like I think there's one called Christian News Service and the Christian Science Monitor, and so I'm curious like what. How, how you see the JTA and kind of relationship with other kind of religion reporting, because it feels very different to me, but I've never actually tried to separate them. I would love to hear more about why it feels different to you, because I will tell you that that is not, I haven't thought that much about it yet. I had this idea that I would, you know, join JTA. I get to know the Jewish news landscape. At some point I would like figure out like, you know, what is the equivalent of the Education Writers Association and which has a great conference every year. And I would like go to that for religion writers because it does exist. Like obviously I won't go to that anytime soon. Um, so, so I don't know. That's new to me. I do know that um, a surprising number of folks who, that I got to know on the education beat had spent time on the religion beat previously, not Jewish. And, um, so I have an, I kind of have an affinity for the beat already just from working with those folks. Um, but I don't have an answer to that. I'm curious what you, what you've kind of observed and what, what informs that question. Well, I mean, it's hard to know. It's like one of those things where anytime you read an article about something that you know intimately, you immediately pick up on like, that does not make sense. Or like that person, you know, like you pick up on, if it's like an article about your shul, you like know the thing that that's not quite right about it or the thing that doesn't make sense. And I feel like I, I am that way about all Jewish news stories and that like, I have a sense of what is, what makes sense. And like when something is being explained in an article, I like understand what they're getting right. wrong or getting right. And I don't have that for Christian news, but I do feel like Christian news services are usually come from a place of, um, uh, adherence to the faith like it's about mm -hmm. it, it's it's it comes from a, a place of um devotion and uh like a 
an, an I'm like cannot think of the word, but like a, a piece of being being a uh, a devoted member of that faith. And I feel like JTA's coverage is not like now as religious people, we all know <laughs> like that's not the tone of it. And so that to me, that's something that I, I but I also like I don't know if someone who's Christian would say that about those services. That's just my take on it. Yeah, I don't know either. That's an interesting question. But I, I will say that for sure, we at JTA believe that what we what what we are trying to do is be Jewish news for all Jews. And so, as we know, like the range of beliefs and relationships to, I don't know, all of everything is like ranges extremely, you know, widely across the world. So I think that that is something that's always present for us as we're putting together news. Um, I think you're also maybe just homing in on like a difference between how Jewish people express their religious identity and how Christians or religious Christians do. Um, again, like I am not super informed here. So, so I, this is something I'd like to learn more about. Um, I think that, the, you know, I think that the, our, our mandate to be, clear and fair and accurate in for all Jews is really a it, it's hard it's really hard and I think you're totally right also that like anytime you know the subject if you re, you know when you're reading news you're like no 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 I know a little bit more um I think that that's that's definitely you know like I have recognized that our readers <laughs> feel that way I can't believe a Jewish newspaper has opinionated readers <laughs> that's a great thing I get to learn from them um, you know, I mean, there's this, I, I have just tapped into like Jewish Twitter in the last several months Welcome. and that's new to me. Um, and the conversation there about unorthodox, I think is like really, it's kind of what exactly what you're saying, right? It's like, well, I, I know this community, so I know that like this scene and that scene are like wrong. It's like, well, yeah, but like, I think, and I think that there's, there's a thread of that conversation that's saying um, so that show should not have been made or should not have been made by somebody who is not in the community. And, um, and like, you know, art is different from journalism. I, in my mind, um, I think there are probably like people, theorists out there who would argue with that, but like, to me, they're very different. But I think that the logical conclusion of that argument is like, art shouldn't get created. And I think there's a somewhat parallel sentiment out there that like, you know, and it's not just in Jewish media, but in across, across the media landscape and like different communities and different places. And I think you, I think this is something we've heard for several years, you know, like you like, no, like reporting should come from the community if it's going to be about the community. And like, obviously that's important, but it's, it can't be the end of the conversation. Um, and where am I going with this? Except that I think, you know, like the Jewish world is really vast and has a lot of diversity. And even if we were the biggest news organization in the universe, we wouldn't have personal experience with all of that. We are reporters and, um, and our challenge is to like, you know, represent the communities that we cover fairly and accurately and, and hopefully make, you know, hopefully people feel, feel that when they're reading our news. Um, again, don't remember how we started this, so I can't wrap it up, but, um, right. Christian media, which I don't know anything about. So 
<laughs> I'll just keep talking about my little sliver of the Jewish media landscape that I know a little bit about. <laughs> I hope that you do get to go to the Religion Writers of America Association or whatever. That sounds fascinating. I mean, that's the dream. Yeah. <laughs> that's the dream. You know, like a year ago, if you told me like, oh, this conference is going to be in Albuquerque, I'd be like, oh, that's lame. Like, I, won't, I like my conferences to be in like my favorite cities. It could be anywhere. It could be anywhere. You can put it in Toledo. Just I would love Zoom. to go to Toledo. Um, so, just not on Zoom. Yes. I just want to follow up to that question because I, I think some some of what you were kind of alluding to was the, um, the, the sometimes unclear line between like novelty and real news in the Jewish world, which is something that like we've come across a lot doing the podcast of like something is like there's an article in a paper and then it's really just like the secret Jewish history of anything like chess, pens, <laughs> eyeglasses, a table, like, and at a certain point it becomes like hard to, yeah. And at a certain point it starts to feel like there's not a lot there. Um, and so I'm curious, like, but on the other hand, like, you know, do I read secret Jewish history of chess? I sure do. <laughs> yeah, I think of that stuff as in not a disparaging way, like grandpa stories. Like my grandfather was always like, you know, always knew like this guy was a Jew. His mm -hmm. grandmother was a Jew. You know, oh, you're reading about so and so in the news. Like he once went to a synagogue <laughs> like he was on top of that. And and I don't and I think that matters. You know, I don't know. I don't know if that's true in like the rest of the world. But like that is how Jewish people think and talk about things. And I think that our news should reflect that um do I think that's where it ends like no but I'm I I'm not a purist I think that uh news should engage people I don't think I think that you know po posting the best investigative journalism in the world if nobody reads it is not you know you haven't done your job um I think and and I think that we have this luxury as a wire service that like we can push out a range of kinds of content and um then learn a little bit about who's picking up what and um I think we could one of the ways that I want us to get better is helping readers understand okay I just clicked on Facebook to this thing um here's something else that's a little bit different that would be relevant to me and interesting to me. And I want to read that next. And right now our site doesn't, isn't really set up to do that. Um, that's something that, you know, there's been a lot of innovation on that front in news. And I think we can borrow from that over time and, and help readers see that no matter what pathway you take into JTA, there's more for you to learn. Can I ask you guys some questions? Please. Yeah. What, how do you consume Jewish news? And what are you looking for? Um, what would make it better for you? You know, it's interesting. I decided, I don't know how many months ago, because like you said earlier, time has lost all meaning. But sometime between three and six months ago, I decided to get off Facebook. Um, and on the whole, I've been happy with that decision. But I think that one of the unintended negative consequences is that I'm consuming less Jewish news. Um, because I think that so much of my Facebook network was Jewish and so much, and I was just sort of passively relying on that um, to pass along 
a fair amount of Jewish news, whereas I do use Twitter, but it's mostly in my professional sphere rather than um, rather than in the Jewish or personal sphere. And that it's interesting. I grew up in a household that subscribed to some Jewish print publications. Then I went off to be an independent adult. And during pretty much all of that time, I encountered my Jewish news via social media. And now that I am doing neither of those things, I find that my Jewish news consumption has gone down a lot. And it's something that I looked up recently and realized was true. Um, And I moved to Canada not too long ago, and one of the things that I did was subscribe to a monthly news magazine because I was like, I'm a public policy professional and I don't know how this country works. I should really engage with the national political news. But I did not say, oh, I should subscribe to the Canadian Jewish news. That is not the first thing that I thought when I moved here. And I'm if you had done that, perhaps the Canadian Jewish news would not have just gone. Out yes. Of which I became aware of this week that they. Zahava. <laughs> um, but actually, it is in in the sense that I'm the avatar of a certain population. It is, in fact, all my fault. Um, and so that's something that I am actually um realizing about my consumption of Jewish news only in the last few months as I have left Facebook and started to be more proactive about what news I choose to consume. I'm realizing that. Interesting. I would say the same, that that my Jewish media is also mostly curated by Facebook and Twitter. Um, And I've seen recently two big holes in my Jewish media consumption. Um, the first is I grew up in the reform community and not many people any longer in my social media bubble are sharing what's going on in the reform world. And so I feel very out of touch with that. And the second, though I live in Boston, I often do not know what's going on in the Boston Jewish community. Um, I guess I get emails from CJP, the Federation here, but I don't get any of the publications. So much of, honestly, a lot of my Jewish news is about New York, where I don't live and haven't lived in 10 years. Um, and it's, it's interesting just in this conversation to think about the local news that I'm not hearing um, because people aren't sharing those articles or, and I don't yeah. like those um those networks online. Yeah. And your heart might also be in New York. At least that's part of my problem. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, you guys are saying something a little bit similar, which is that's um, useful for us. And something we're thinking about is like, you know, the New York Jewish Week is a really, has been a really powerful newspaper for a long time. Um, Recently has, you know, experiencing the same struggles that so many local news organizations are covering. And so a real question for us is a lot of our staff is based in New York. Should we do more New York coverage if that becomes a need? Um, or does that kind of perpetuate this uh, New York-centered vision of what American Jewry is that has some roots in reality, but also gives short shrift to the lived experience of lots and lots of Jews across America um, and, and North America and the world? My partner and I like to say that we are like we single handedly are keeping print media in business Yay. because we subscribe to like 
every, every, like the number of magazines that we get is like shocking. <laughs> um, and I mean, I subscribe to them and I am shocked. Um, and yeah, and we get, we still get a print newspaper every day. And, um, sometimes some days we get two, like we are serious. Um, we, we, I was mostly getting the Jewish Exponent, which is the Philadelphia Jewish paper, um, at Shul. Like, there were copies at Shul. And so, um, and I also was, like, not, like, a huge fan of it as a news source. Um, and then they, like, outsourced all of their writers to some other company. Um, and, and it was, like, kind of a bad situation. And so I was, like... It was right when I had been like, oh, I really have to subscribe to another thing. And then they were like, we're not paying anybody who lives in Philadelphia mm. anymore. And I was like, eh, maybe I don't. Um, I could just read this at Shul. Um, and now, <laughs> LOL, going to Shul. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that is, I, I feel, I also get like a ton of my Jewish um, news from, from social media. I'm also like friends with a bunch of like newsy people. Like I'm friends with Ben Sales and I'm friends with David Amolensky in California. And so I feel like I get like a kind of coastal view, um, from, from my friend group, but I, and I somewhat attuned to what's going on in Philadelphia, although I don't work in the Jewish world anymore. So, which is a blessing, but sometimes <laughs> does mean that I don't know the like ins and outs of like what rabbi is leaving what shul for what unsavory right. reason or whatever well um, one thing that is changing in my personal life is that i don't think i've mentioned this to you ladies yet i got um i got tapped to serve on my shul board um starting this summer and i feel like i really got to get my act together on understanding <laughs> happenings in the wider community because I'll be the one person at this like 25 person board table that has no idea what's going on in the Jewish world of Toronto. Oh, no, you will not. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you something about being on a school board. <laughs> I think you're saying something, though, that's really like you've all said things that are that we are thinking about like this moment. Yeah, like that is how people find their local news, like on the table when they're like hanging out because they don't want to go back into shul and there's a stack of papers and I'm going to find out what's going on locally. Like that is completely evaporated. And I think that we can learn a lot about what interest is and, and serve people in this time. And I think that the other piece is like, how do we, we're, we are not probably ever going to have like a reporter in every city. Sure. That would be awesome. If, um, if anyone listening like has wants to support that, like we, we will do our best. Um, we are, really actively thinking about how do we get local coverage from more places. Um, we have set aside funds to support that, though probably not through like hiring um, in the short term. Uh, but then what is the formula? Like what are we what are we producing, right? Like the reader in Philadelphia who wants a little bit of Philadelphia news and the reader in Toronto who wants some Toronto news, like they don't want to go to the same website or maybe they do. And we need to understand that. Um, but are there other ways to kind of partition coverage locally and, and you know, give the Toronto reader the mix that a Toronto reader wants and give the Philadelphia reader the mix that the Philadelphia reader wants? 
um, you know, I think we can make use of newsletters or, um, or I don't know, like we can be creative here. Um, and that's something that we are definitely kind of putting our, our heads down about. Um, we want, we want Jewish readers to have a news source that helps them make sense of their world and where, and where, you know, where their community fits in. Um, we see that to the extent that publications have done that up to now, like it's getting harder and harder for them to do that. And we want to be part of the solution for this like pressing, terrible problem that all local news is facing. And, um, you know, there's a lot that we're learning from, from solutions that are being tried outside of the Jewish media world. And I feel hopeful. It's scary. It's a really scary time for everybody. It's scary for media. Um, but I think, I think they're, I don't know. I feel like we can do really good work and serve readers. And, and here's the moment to put in a plug for signing up for the JTA newsletter. We, it goes out every single day and you will get a mix of meaty things that are going to make you think and, and interesting stories that are going to introduce you to a new place and like fun stuff about celebrities too. We have it all in 70 Faces Media, the media organization that JTA is part of. We've also got My Jewish Learning and Nasher and Kveller. Um, and Alma, so there are lots of, um, you know, there's lots available already. We're going to get smarter and smarter about pulling pieces from across our organization together um, so that readers can get the right mix. Uh, but there's a lot there, and, and signing up for the newsletter is the best way to get it in your inbox. You don't have to find it on a table. You can, yeah, it'll be right there for you. Well, this conversation has really thinking in advance of this conversation and then having it ha has really made me think more about what I'm missing um, and what I feel like I'm missing and what I really want to return to seeking out proactively. Um, so thanks for providing that inspiration. And hopefully our listeners are feeling that way, too. Thank you for being a kind of a... Um audience focused group of three. So that's really very helpful for me. And like, you know, I, I always appreciate hearing from readers or potential readers with ideas for what, for what they want out of their Jewish news. So, you know, anyone can be in touch with me. Um, but I really thank you for this conversation too. Great. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Great night. For our second segment, we're talking about Broken Bird, which is a new short film by creator Rachel Harrison Gordon. The film was set to debut at South by Southwest, but instead it's now streamable at MailChimp, of all places. The film follows Birdie, a black Jewish girl studying for her coming-of-age ceremony, a.k.a. her bat mitzvah. Um, yeah, so I first heard about this uh, from an article on Hey Alma, uh, which was referenced briefly in our first segment. Um, so it's a nice little transition. And uh, I brought it up to the rest of you, and I'm totally curious what you all thought of it. I enjoyed it. It's interesting. I watch very few shorts as a rule. And this is a short short. It is uh, like a 10 minute film. And when it and as I was watching it, I was like, I can see what the two hour version of this would have been and what additional parts of this girl's universe would have been in this movie, because there are four speaking characters and two of them have a total of like two lines apiece. Um, so there's the main character, Birdie, 
there is her mother who says, I really think a total of two lines. There's her father with whom she spends the bulk of the film. And then there's a salesman that they, that she speaks to with her father very briefly. And that's it. But she references something that the rabbis say to her in her bat mitzvah preparation classes. And I can totally picture the expanded version of this where she has her Hebrew school classes. She also has her presumably secular, regular grade school experience surrounding it, that you would see a contrast there. You would see more about the community she lives in with her mom versus where she visits with her dad. And like, in a short, all of that is like, like vacuum sealed down to the essence of um, of the conflict that she feels between the two worlds within which she lives. And it's just, it feels like a very different art form. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just interesting to see like, oh, like this, this is the, the film concentrate um, <laughs> of this person's story. Um, and so I know that's a more global comment than really thinking about this particular short, but just because I watched so few shorts that in and of itself was like my first reaction. Well, I also think like short is a very flexible term. Like it means something like less than like an hour and a half, but like some short films are like half an hour, even 40 minutes. Um, so this is definitely like a short, short. Right. I, I left it wanting more. Um, not because there were glaring holes in it. I, I think that everything felt pretty, um, it, it, it felt like it could, it can stand on its own. Um, but there were just so many more relationships that I wanted to see dug into. Um, so have I feel like the other voices that were present was actually the Torah portion. And the music that her father exposes her to, which is, mm, I always struggle with like music genres, but kind of like R&B, I guess. Or like, you get some disco, like you disco, get some Donna yeah. Summer disco. Okay, great. Thank you. That's the word. Um, and I really loved the role that music played. Um, you see her at one point sort of daydreaming or there, there's this dreamlike sequence where she's seeing the lyrics to the disco song written out as on a Torah scroll, for example. And then at the end of the film, you see her dancing in the synagogue without any, um, any congregants there, but just sort of joyfully dancing. Um, and in the interview we read with the filmmaker, she talks about this film as cathartic um, and the joy of the music and that closing dance scene really for me nailed home that cathartic feeling and and the lightness of it, and the, the youth of it. I, I, I was very taken by it. I found it charming. Um, and yeah, the aesthetics were, were beautiful to me. Well, Tamar, I'm interested to hear 
to talk a little bit more about hair and hair politics, which do play a role and I know are something that you have thought about a little bit. I uh, have a black Jewish daughter and also um, have a stepdaughter. So, um, so I deal with like today she came from her mom's house to our house. So it was just like a very, <laughs> a very much like, oh, this is like a weird, like somebody made a movie of different parts of my life wished together. I thought the hair stuff was really interesting and I kind of like wanted to hear the filmmaker talk through like each of the hair decisions in the movie because there's one part where um the main character Birdie is waiting for her I, I think we're supposed to believe that she's waiting for her dad to show up at her bat mitzvah and she's like in her bat mitzvah dress and her hair which was straightened straightened in the beginning of the film is now like it's not straightened but it's not um, in it's like natural curl, it's in a kind of like, I don't know, it's a weird in between, um, kind of style, which like, I just never ever see any black or white women wear. Like it, it was just like a very unusual choice. Um, and I was like, I'm so curious, like what that was about and what she was getting at there, because I, f I found it super distracting. I was like, I was having the exact thing that we were talking about in the last segment of like, I know something about this and that would never happen. <laughs> I was just like, nobody would go out like that. Certainly not at their bat mitzvah. Um, so yeah, so I'm super curious about like the, um, the symbolism behind like a couple of specific moments, but I thought like in general, like hair is just such a big part of many black women's identity and how they, um, how they choose to present themselves and how they, what expectations they, um, feel around hair, um, you know, for their professional life, for their family, for their community, all of those things, um, are just like a really big part of a lot of black women's lives. And so it was very interesting to see that play out. And like, the first thing that happens in the film is that the, um, actually, I think this is true. Um, the girl is getting her hair straightened and uh, Brody is getting her hair straightened and then her mom picks her up and um and just like this idea of like she's having this uh experience that's very important to her identity and her mom is like literally outside of it and just kind of picks her up in the car was really interesting and also like her mom um her mom touches her hair and I just had this like <laughs> Uh, visceral, like, oh my God, don't do that. <laughs> um, even though it was her mom. Uh, but I just was like, I, I had just like a kind of like white lady should not touch um, black people's hair, even though like I obviously touch my daughter's hair. Um, so yeah, I had, I was so interested in this, but I also, I found it very, I was, I was like, what? I wonder like what, what does it's not clear to me what we're supposed to take away from this about what this girl's relationship is with Judaism, which I mean, that's OK. I don't think we need to know. I don't think that that's what is what she's trying to get at here. But I was like, the bat mitzvah is important, but we're not really hearing a sense of like to what degree, like, is it important because like it's a it's a big day or is it important because like she feels connected to this as a thing um she is like doing 
when she's learning her Torah reading for her bat mitzvah, she's like thinking about what it means. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I was, there's a lot, there's just like, yeah, it's a very tight film, but there is definitely a lot there. And I totally agree. Like, I think it could easily be made into a feature length film. In terms of the scene where she's getting her hair straightened in the beginning, separate and apart from the decision to have straight hair or not straight hair, what that felt like to me was actually the film's only moment of seeing her in community. Mm. So the the entire rest of the film is she's one-on-one with her mother. She's alone in the room, in her room, listening to her Torah portion on headphones, trying to learn it. She's essentially one-on-one with her father, even though they're in a restaurant. That's just the two of them speaking to each other. But the only moment where it feels like she's embraced by community, because we don't see any congregation in the shul, um, even though we physically see her in the shul, there's no sort of congregation, whether it's people celebrating or just regular prayer service, it's only ever her in that space, but you see her really being in at least a group of a, a few other black women in the salon um, where her hair is being taken care of, where there's clearly a sense that like, you belong here, we are the people that know what you need in this moment. And that is the only time you have that sense throughout the, the film, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, Tamar, her mom is literally on the outside of it. Um, and so that was really interesting to me. And the fact that her learning for her bat mitzvah is 100% listening to headphones. Um, yes. As like you, you don't even just see like a, a quick shot of her having a lesson with a live person. Like there's no rabbi or cantor there. Um, that you know that her Judaism comes from her mother's side. Like the film makes that pretty clear, but you don't see her mom uh, fostering it in any way. Like she's sort of alone in building that Jewishness. The the, the filmmaker, um, Rachel Harrison Gordon, in a couple of interviews referred to the fact that the movie takes place in one of the occasional visits that she has with her father or fewer, few and far between custody days or something with her father. Um, I don't think that's clear from the film itself that this is an unusual occurrence. For all we know, this happens every third day. I don't know. She she invites him to her bat mitzvah in a way that is like not sure whether or not he'll come. And I feel like if she saw him every three days, that was not the kind of thing that he would not be at. Right. Like, it seems like she's... There's a strange moment. Yeah, I don't know. Her mom just drops her off in a parking lot, and then the dad comes and picks her up in a parking lot. And in between, she's by herself in this random parking lot, which made me think this is a time-honored place of being dropped off. Oh, it made me think, like, what's up with this mom? <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> I think the mom was waiting. It's like a pawn shop or something parking lot. I thought the mom was waiting in the car at the other end. Like I thought the mom was physically in the parking lot. She just didn't want to run into the dad. Interesting. I kind of thought that too, but she. It looks like she's leaving. Like I wasn't. You don't understand until the dad shows up what's happening. Yeah. You're just like, who is she waiting for? Why did her mom like let her out in this random parking lot and then drive off? At the very least, she's symbolically alone. That's clear. Right. But I I do actually think that, like, there's a lot, there's actually a lot that's conveyed by the fact that, like, the mom doesn't, like, wait with her, with her in the car until dad drives up. Like, mom is like, 
get out of the car. I'm going to physically move to another space, even if she can, like, actually see her. She's, like, separating herself from her daughter when she's going to be with the dad. And then, like, when when the mom and the dad actually do have a conversation later, like, it's not a... It's clear that it's, like, not a nice one. Um and yeah, there's just like a lot of dynamics that are communicated in a very like effective and tight way, but it's very stressful <laughs> to watch. Like as someone who's involved sometimes in divorce related dynamics, it's just like, oh God, <laughs> I, I was not excited to be part of it, even for just a few minutes in this short. I mean, the fact that we got so that we got so many layers of relationship and feeling out of a 10 minute film, I think is quite impressive. Mm-hmm. Um And there are also, there are things that I saw referenced in an interview or two that I didn't get in the moment, Um, specifically her Torah portion, um, the part that you hear her practicing is about what happens if somebody makes a vow and needs to go back on it. Um, And one of the reviews said, the he in question making this vow is, of course, her father who doesn't show up to the bat mitzvah. And that was something that I I was so focused on her because she's alone in the frame as she's waiting at the bat mitzvah and like that. I didn't, I didn't make the connection that the Torah portion had anything to do with him. Um, and maybe that's just me being obtuse. Um, but just, no, I also didn't get that until I read the interview. So it was just, um, it was interesting. I mean, I think that the thing, the thing that was clearest Mimi, as you said, to me actually was the music dynamics, the music of the Torah portion, the music of the um, of the Donna Summer record that she's listening to, and also the amazing version of Eretz Zavat Chalav yeah. that you hear recorded by Nina Simone, um, which I was listening to it and I was like, I know this voice and I it. I'm like, is, there's no way that could be Nina Simone. And then I Google it. And I'm like, oh, my God, there is a version <laughs> of Eretz Zavad recorded by Nina Simone, which I had no idea was the case. I don't know if that's something that you guys knew previously, um, but it is just the the foot in both worlds element of that overlaid is so beautiful and poignant. And the fact that it it's a it's a grateful and celebratory song in a lot of ways, but Nina Simone's voice gives a layer of doubt and melancholy to it in a way that her voice can to anything um, that is quite perfect and beautiful in the moment. There's another r- reference to this crossover with, when the, when Birdie is talking to her father, um, she mentions that in Hebrew school, that they tell her like, well, you know, Egypt's in Africa when I get presumably talking about the Israelites enslaved in Egypt. Um, so there's, there's like this push pull of Bertie trying to feel like part of the Jewish community, but being othered and outside. And, and you sort of do get that hearing Nina Simone singing Eretz Zavad Chalav, um, that it's like, it's just a blending of worlds that can make you feel comforted or outside. One thing that I didn't like is the title. Um, mm-hmm. Just Broken Bird feels very final and tragic in a way that does not actually feel true to this film. Like I, I understand that she is uh, experiencing a split, 
so I guess broken in that sense, but I, this does not feel like the story of somebody who is beaten down. Um, it's just, it's, it's a coming of age moment. And just like many 12 year olds might be trying to explore and figure out and navigate their way. It just, I, something, uh, something rubbed me the wrong way about calling this broken bird. There's a, a really excellent novel called Caucasia by a writer named Danzi Senna. And I wondered when I was watching this if there was this was at all an allusion to it, because it's a um, it's a book about a, a girl whose dad is black and whose mom is white. I don't think the mom is Jewish. Um, and she lives with the mom and her name is Birdie. Um and um, it's a really good book. I haven't read it in a long time, so I honestly can't tell you anything more than what I just told you. But um, but I wondered if it was that. And I also, I wondered, just reading the interviews of, with the filmmaker, I, I found myself thinking, like, she talks about how, like, her dad liked the movie and her mom didn't like it that much. And I was like, well, yeah, if I was the mom, I wouldn't be super into this film. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I I wonder how much of this was really going into like her, uh, her own feelings after her parents' divorce and like how that played out. And like, I can imagine that she might be feeling broken. But I agree. Like, I didn't. I don't think that this film like really sells that, which is good. I think. I mean, I think the weirdest thing about this movie is that for some reason it's streaming on MailChimp. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that, I'd never seen the phrase streaming on MailChimp before. I know. (laughs) It seems like maybe, so this this is a a festival film um, that's part of the South by Southwest um, film festival. And it seems like South by Southwest perhaps in COVID times is making films available in this way. But if you want a more normal way to access it, um, Amazon Prime also has a South by Southwest film package of which this is a part. I did not know that. I definitely watched it on MailChimp. Um, I'm excited to recommend this to people. I mean, it's such a small investment of time and and such a delight that I, I hope a lot of people definitely tune in and and look forward to seeing what else this filmmaker comes up with. Yes, absolutely. I I really liked it. I'd highly recommend it. And I'm super excited for whatever this filmmaker does next, because I think it's going to be really good. OK, now is the time where we endorse things. So Zahava, what would you like to endorse? My first sort of mini endorsement just immediately related to um, our last conversation is that you can find on YouTube a video of Nina Simone and her band recording Eretz Avat Chalav Udvash in 1962, like a video. Um, and just watching her sing and play piano while she just has, um, it's a trio. So there's a one um, one person playing a stand-up bass and another playing bongos. And the syncopation and the funk of it, it sounds a lot actually like her, um, the Nina Simone song, Sinner Man, um, in vibe, but just watching the video is so cool and I totally recommend it. So I'll share a link to that in the show notes. Um, 
The other thing I want to recommend, and this is sort of a recommendation, sort of a thank you, I suppose, um, is that there is um, a unit within the Nachal Haredi, so the um, the ultra-Orthodox uh, segment of the of the Israeli army, um, that has active duty soldiers um, at in the, at the um, Netzach Yehuda base, I think. Um, and because they are all stationed together during um, this quarantine, they have been meeting for Minyan um, at a time when almost nobody is meeting for Minyan and have made themselves available to say Kaddish on behalf of thousands of people um, who are feeling bereft for lack of ability to say Kaddish either during a year of mourning or on a yard site. Um, so uh, my father is one of the people who recently um, asked them to include his yard site for his mother in their um, in their Kaddish roster um, and, you know, made a small donation, but like this is something that they're just making available because they see it as a genuine Jewish public service that people really need. Um, and I'm quite sure that it's something that people from across the Jewish spectrum of observance are taking advantage of right now, which in and of itself is quite beautiful. Um, so just want to shout out the soldiers um, on Netzach Yehuda as part of the Nachal Haredi who are making this, um, making Kaddish accessible to lots of people who otherwise would not be able to have it said for their loved ones right now. That's really cool. I didn't know that was happening. Mimi, what do you have to endorse? This has been making the rounds. You probably have all seen it or heard it, but I can't let one listener not hear um, the recording of a dad at home chanting Torah to the children's book, Chicka Chicka Boom Boom. And now there's a second one of Haftara to... Uh, the hungry, hung the very hungry caterpillar just has me giggling every time I hear it. I now can't read the book Chicka Chicka Boom Boom to my son without <laughs> chanting it. <laughs> um, just as God intended. Exactly. Um, there are just so many wonderful moments in his trope and there's something very particular about like a sort of nasally voice that he brings. Um, and in the YouTube video, uh, not, not YouTube, the Twitter video, which we'll link to, um, you can see the trope markings in the book, which is also just really fun. And I kind of wanted to face our copy of Chicka Chicka Boom Boom with the cantillation marks. Um, so definitely, if you haven't already, please check that out. Um, I also... In my quest for fun things to fill my um, timeline with, I wanted to recommend, there's a Twitter account called uh, My Shul Called Life. Um, it's, or maybe the handle is Rogue Shul. I'm not exactly sure what's what. Zahava, if you're going to be on your shul board, you really need to be <laughs> following Rogue Shul carefully because it's good. Adding um, it to the list right now. I want to endorse a book that I don't think we've talked about, but is really good. Or, well, I liked it, but I, I need to unpack it with people. Um, and it's Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy Bodiser-Ackner, um, which... Uh, 
The joke in my house is that we refer to the book Fleischman is in trouble as Goldberg is upset because <laughs> one time when I was reading it, my partner couldn't remember what it was called. And that's <laughs> what he came up with. Um, yeah. So anyways, Goldberg is upset. It is a commentary on uh, marriage and divorce and also and I think very the part of it where I was like, what even is this? It's about like three friends who were like tight on their semester in Israel in college or their, maybe it was their summer trip. I can't remember. I think it was their semester. And um, there's just like there's a lot of Jewish stuff um, interspersed in the story in a very lived in way. Like it doesn't feel like someone who was like kind of a spectator in Judaism for most of their life and just kind of like peppered that stuff in this story. It really feels like someone who has spent a lot of time, you know, on their Israel trip and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I need to talk about it with our listeners. So I would like you, if you have read, um, Goldberg is upset, also known as, as Fleischman is in trouble. Um, uh, and you have thoughts. I would like to talk about them with you. Um, but my like fun, uh, fun endorsement is, did you all know that um, the Ravad had a uh, serious rivalry with Rambam? No. Rivalry in uh, what sense? In in the sense that he uh, like wrote a commentary on Rambam's commentary uh, on on Chumash with comments such as "This is nothing." <laughs> By the life of my head, there's no point here. The mind cannot accept any of this. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, the, this author did not conduct himself with the conduct of wise people, for one should not begin a thought without knowing how to end it. Whoa. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> I know. Like, um, but it does, it's not clear to me that Rambam knew that Ravad existed or even that they lived at the same time. There's a um, tweet thread, which I will link to, which is where I learned about this. And I am really shocked by it. And it's one of those things where it's like, why did I attend 13 years of Jewish day school to not learn about like Jewish commentator rivalries. Like, come on, <laughs> give me some news I can use guys. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is like really amazing. I mean, I, I'm not even like a hundred percent positive that this list is real, but it goes on long enough and it's not like that funny that I think it is real. <laughs> um, and apparently there is, a handy set of Rambam published only the Rambam, um, but also the Ravad's short pithy retorts to the Rambam, um, <laughs> which is an amazing approach to publishing. Anyways, uh, yeah, I this was like an amazing thing that I learned and has brought me great joy. So Rambam and Ravad's rivalry is my second endorsement. <laughs> But actually, I think it was just the Ravad's rivalry with the Rambam, and the Rambam was like, I don't even know who you are. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, researching this led me to a Reddit page that literally was like, did the Rambam even know that Raji existed? 
<laughs> which really sounds like very high school. Um, and the answer is probably not. Thank you all for listening. Uh, if you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts um, or let us know what you'd like us to discuss on future episodes. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page by searching for Jewish Public Media on Facebook or on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking in Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media, which is a really great way of supporting our podcast. Um, you can do that at jpmedia.co. And that will help us to continue to bring you a new podcast every month. Thank you so much, Mimi. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you, Zahava. Thank you both. So good to see you. Yeah. See you next month. What is time? (laughs) 